This is CHUO 89.1 FM. Welcome to this week's episode of The Mosaic, your weekly show highlighting the voices of the community. Here, we guide you through today's social issues, introduce you to changemakers, and keep in touch with the arts, music, and events of the city. You can expect extensive research, in-depth analysis, and discussion. From CHUO's news team, this is The Mosaic. Today, we speak with Asanabka Film Festival's co-founder, Howard Adler. He tells us more about their annual snow screen for Winterlude, with this year being the first time Ottawa didn't have enough snow for it. It's sad, but the, you know, the show must go on. Then we'll hear from one of Ovarian Cancer Canada's top fundraisers about what she's been working on for Valentine's Day. Stick around. I'm Lauren Rolston, and we've got all that and more coming up on The Mosaic. Every year for Winterlude, Asanabka Film Festival sets up its snow screen. Indigenous films are cast onto a large mound of snow for viewers to watch from benches with a cup of hot chocolate. Only this year, there wasn't enough snow for the snow screen. Many Winterlude traditions have been forced to pivot in the wake of an unusually warm January. But at the end of the day, traditions like the snow screen mean much more for participants and organizers alike. I spoke with Asanabka Film Festival's co-founder, Howard Adler, ahead of the snow screen event. And here's that conversation. So we're doing the snow screen event, it's happening, but because of the lack of snow, we're actually just going to be using a pop-up screen. Mm. Uh, but the show must go on, and this is our eighth edition of our snow screen event. And this is the first time there hasn't been enough snow to actually construct the screen. So it's a it's sad, but the, you know the show must go on. We're still doing a screening outdoors in the winter, and that's what's happening tonight. Right. Uh, and Nevertheless, <laughs> we persist. Exactly. <laughs> Can you tell me where the idea of the like the first idea of the snow screen came from? Yeah, me and Chris, who runs the festival with me, uh, we were actually at a international indigenous gathering of like people that run indigenous film festivals from all over the world. And we met someone from a film festival in Finland called Skabmagavat. At that festival, they do a snow screen. And they told us about it. And we were, you know, we were like, hey, can we do that here? And they're like, yeah, you can do it here. And then we thought about it for a couple of years and before we actually tried to do it. And we did it. And, you know, now it's our eighth year trying to do it. <laughs> and you're in Ottawa, right? Like, why not? It's supposed to be a pretty cool capital. Exactly, yeah, it's like the, it's, you know, we get a lot of winter here, so we might as well embrace it and uh, turn it into fun. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I kind of want to hear more about, like, how you guys choose specific films and filmmakers for your snow screen. So, like, it depends on the year, but usually the, like, curatorial focus of the snow screen is, like, northern indigenous cultures and films and stories. So, like, usually kind of trying to stick to the circumpolar north so that would be like filmmakers and films from like you know northern europe sweden finland places where there's sami people uh, russia where there's like different indigenous groups there like the saka people are there inuit films from the north of canada and greenland yeah so anything indigenous from circumpolar north that's sort of the focus of the films right right and and then this whole snow screen it's based on like the traditions of storytelling in these circumpolar communities 
Can you tell me about the significance of storytelling, particularly in the Arctic region? Well, I'm not from the north, so I can't really speak directly to that. But for the Anishinaabe people, like the winter time is often a time of storytelling, and I think it's similar for different indigenous groups. And you know, like winter is when you're often indoors more, and it's a time of storytelling. So, and I think that's probably relatively a common time of year for storytelling. And you know, I think film is just another form of storytelling, and so it, it, I think it fits. Mm-hmm. It yeah, winter. My brain. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Winter time is for like togetherness, keeping warm. Yeah, exactly. You have a Bachelor in Arts and Indigenous Studies and a Master of Arts. I want to know what put you onto the art scene. Uh, I don't know. I guess I've just always been interested in art making. Like, my parents own a stained glass shop. You know, I grew up trying to make like trying to make films on, like, back in the analog days. <laughs> yeah, I just always interested in, in, well, film and video specifically, but also just art in general. Like, I make films myself. I'm a filmmaker. And yeah, I do other types of art as well, crafts and beading and um, all sorts of things. Mm, stained glass, that sounds like a really cool childhood, actually. Yeah, yeah. I, I, all, all my brothers and sisters can make a stained glass window or lamp, no problem. <laughs> <laughs> that was my conversation with Howard Adler, co-founder of the Asinapka Film Festival. Jennifer Smith has been a survivor of ovarian cancer for over 20 years. Since her recovery, she's become one of Ovarian Cancer Canada's top fundraisers. Each summer, the organization holds a Walk of Hope. In total, it's raised over $1,400,000. Jennifer walks with her team, the Pole Walkers for a Cure. But through the rest of the year, Jennifer and the Pole Walkers are finding more and more ways to raise funds, to research ovarian cancer, and contribute to early detection and prevention. Right now, she's making truffles for Valentine's Day. I spoke with Jennifer about her fundraising and spreading awareness. Here's that conversation. To kick us right off, you are the team leader of Pole Walkers for a Cure uh, for Ovarian Cancer Canada's and big part of the Walk of Hope. Um, yes. I'd love it if you could start us off by telling me where your fundraising began before we talk about that, though. Okay, so I started fundraising about oh, 10 years ago. When I went to my um, first Walk of Hope here in Victoria, that was probably back in 2013, 2014. And I I was struck by the fact that uh, women who were survivors like myself were given a teal t-shirt. Supporters were given a white t-shirt. There were very few teal t-shirts. Also, I was quite struck. I had been to some other uh, fundraisers, such as the breast cancer fundraiser, and there were like hundreds of women there, hundreds of women and men. And I was really struck at the ovarian cancer. There were very few people. There were probably less than 100 people. It's much better today, I have to say. It's grown. But back then, it was there were no media. There just wasn't that awareness. And I started, I said, you know, there's not many people here with teal t-shirts. And they said, well, because women don't survive. You know, we don't have the research. We don't have the funds for the research. We don't have early detection. And all the same things are actually similar today. At that point, I think I was probably as a 10-year survivor, 11-year survivor. And I was meeting other women who had been recently diagnosed, and they were amazed that I was a 10- or 11-year survivor and thought, boy, you really give us hope. And I thought that was my first walk. I should perhaps get more involved because obviously I've been through what a lot of women are going through. 
I'm a bit of a signal of hope for a lot of them because I have survived past the 10-year mark, which is unusual. And we need more research funding. We need more awareness. So I need to be doing something, getting out there, trying to raise awareness and raising some funds. So the second year that I went, I decided that I would try to do a bit of fundraising. So I did that. I sent out an email to all my friends and contacts and said I was doing this. And, you know, if they wanted to help, they could send some uh, donations in. Well, I was quite surprised that I actually got, I think that first year, we had $1,600 we raised. And I had also, because I'm a, a Nordic pole walker, I had gone to a lot of my um, pole walking friends. And I said, what if we do a we called it at that time a uh, car trunk sale. So it was a Lunar Toonie sale. So we brought all the junk that we wanted to get rid of, put it at the back of our cars. And I baked some Madeleine and some small Victoria sandwich cakes and sold them from the back of my car. And we raised about $600 at that. Wow. So we raised uh, about 1600 And lo and behold, I was the top fundraiser in Victoria that year, which I thought, boy, at 1600 if I'm the top, we're not doing all that great. So that kind of launched it. So we then started the following year, we put together the Paul Walkers for a Cure team and we started doing more serious fundraising. We did a, we still did the car trunk sale, but we made it much larger. I did a bit more baking. We actually got out there and trying to raise more awareness and everybody sort of used their network. And, and I think that second year we brought in probably over $2,000, 2,500. We kind of gone up little by little. And then each year we started, we add on different activities. So we did a one year, we did a big um, catered barbecue down at one of the beaches in Victoria, where people paid $15 for their meal. And we had music and we cooked the food and, and served the food. So that brought in quite a bit of money. So we always try to think outside the box and do things that are going to be fun for people. We get some donations that are online donations. Of course, that's probably 50% of our donations. But we feel that if we're doing some activities that are fun, such as our, our afternoon teas that we do now, our pop-up markets, um, Valentine uh, truffles, that people feel that they're getting something for the money they're donating. And it's more rewarding for them as well because they're getting something tangible and they're thinking, I'm really helping other women, I'm helping the research. And then doing, of course, my teas and some of these other activities gives me the opportunity to talk to women about ovarian cancer, about what they need to be looking for, what they need to talk to their doctors about, and the importance of raising awareness and raising funds so that we can find a means of early detection, particularly. Mm -hmm. So it's, uh, it's kind of gone from there. So our first year, we made 1600 and this year we uh, made 29,500. So um, in the 10 years, we've done quite well, probably raised now over $100,000 for ovarian cancer. So it's, um, it's very satisfying. And we're, we're now starting to talk about what our activities will be for the summer and anything new that we might be adding in. So it's very uh, satisfying. It is very satisfying. Yes. Yeah, almost like $100,000, like you said. That's a lot. That makes a huge difference. It is. Well, yeah. it's, it's a lot when you consider that we, we're probably a team of about 12 people, mm -hmm. and we come from a small city in Victoria. So, you know, we're not a big, you know, cosmopolitan. We're not Toronto. We're not Montreal. We're, you know, Victoria. So considering that, I think it's kudos to my team and to all the supporters that uh, we have out here. Yeah, kudos to your team. Kudos to you as well. You are a top 
fundraiser and yeah. you touched on it briefly, but hope is very important to you. Like you said, at the beginning of your journey, you looked around and didn't see that many teal t-shirts, um, not yeah. a whole lot of fundraising going on at that point. So I'd like it if you could tell me a little bit more about that, because I remember reading that you said that each dollar that you raise represents the hope that you've held with you. Yeah. Can you tell yeah. me a little bit more about that? Well, I don't know how much you know about ovarian cancer, but ovarian cancer is called the whispering disease. And it's called that because by the time you actually get it diagnosed, it has mostly progressed to a later stage. It's not a disease that you can discover with a mammogram or with a pap smear. It's really important for women to be aware and to know their bodies and to know what some of those signs, you know, telling early stage signs might be. It's important for me to get that out to women. I was diagnosed at a late stage and I had those signs, but I didn't know they were signs for ovarian cancer. When I look back, I thought, yeah, I had all of the symptoms they said to watch out for. I had. So it's really important for me, lucky that I'm still a survivor, 20, this would be my 23rd year. So it's really important for me to get out. I need to give women hope and we all need hope. That is really why I keep going. I have nieces. I have young nieces. I have grand nieces. I don't want them to be in the same situation that I was when I turned 53. I don't want them going through what I went through. They may not be as lucky as I am. So I will be doing all I can to raise that awareness and raise funds so that we can get research into that early detection so that we'll have, even if women are diagnosed, it's at an early stage. And it can be treated early and they have a much fuller, longer life. So I'll have I'll see a lot more teal t-shirts when I go to the Walk of Hopes in the future. So it's that's that's important to me. Ovarian cancer, less than 45% of the women diagnosed today will survive five years. So that's that's not very many people. With breast cancer, 88% of women will survive in five years, less than 45% for ovarian cancer. A lot of awareness has been done around breast cancer over the past 20 years. A lot of fundraising. They've got a lot of research dollars from governments and from Canadian cancer. We need to raise the awareness around ovarian cancer so that we can see an improvement in our outcomes, like an improvement if the breast cancer took place. So that's one of my kind of goals. Let's, let's raise that awareness about ovarian cancer. When I was diagnosed, I'd never heard of ovarian cancer. When I talk to women who come to either afternoon teas or I invite it to go to a different women group to, to talk to them, and I ask them, what do you know about ovarian cancer? They don't know anything about ovarian cancer because it's not out there. And it's not out there because we don't have the funds. Ovarian Cancer Canada is doing a great job in trying to get research going, and they're responsible for a lot of research programs across Canada and even internationally, a lot of collaboration. And, you know, lobbying governments for more research dollars, but they can only do so much. They're a small organization and they can't spend that money on marketing when they need it for research. So we need to really get the word out there. And all of us women who have been diagnosed need to be the ambassadors to say enough is enough. We haven't seen a change in statistics for 50 years. We need change now. We want to live now. I'm lucky but women cannot live on luck alone. They need to know that if they're diagnosed, it's going to be early and they're going to get their proper treatment and they will go through it just like some other cancers that you live with it, but you're cured. So that's what I'd like to be able to see. Mm -hmm. 
And it looks like um, Ovarian Cancer Canada and a lot of participants who are fundraising for the cause, it it's almost seems like every year it's like a growing network that's it contributing to this. Right. And and you also mentioned that for uh, this, this year's Walk of Hope, sorry, the 2023 one in the summer, you guys reached almost $30,000, yeah. which is huge. Congratulations. Yeah, thank um, you. How was the walk this year? The walk was good. You know, the we were we didn't walk for two years during COVID, of course. So the first walk um, back was in 2022, and it was small. We could see that there weren't as many people. It was much better last year. We still weren't up to the numbers that we had pre-COVID, but there were a lot of people out there, and we had the media were out, which was very good. And, of course, we get representatives from the BC Cancer Agency that comes out and talks to us about the latest research. So it was it was good. I was quite pleased to see that the number of people that were there. And I'm sure next year will be much, much better as well. And I think we'll probably look at trying to do more pre-media ahead of time. But we did that last year and Ovarian Cancer Canada was very good at sending people from back east out to all of the different cities across Canada so that they could talk to the media as well. So I think that helped and it helped raise the awareness because we had media before the walk. So it brought more people out to the walk and brought in some more um, donations. So, mm-hmm. so I think it, it is, it's, it's getting better, but it's, um, we still have a ways to go. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And, and you're among many people who are saying it's time to pick up the pace. Like there's exactly. a lot that needs it, to be exactly. done here. Exactly. It was like, I don't know if the, if you remember, there was a movie years ago, probably you were too young to remember it called Network. And it was about a television current affairs program. And one of the scenes that is right memorable is that people sort of threw out the window and said, we can't take it anymore. We will take it anymore. Well, I sometimes feel that for ovarian cancer. We won't take it anymore. We won't take women dying. We won't take that people tell us there's no way of being diagnosed for it. We want action now. So I think that the new strategy that Ovarian Cancer Canada has is great. It's really going to be pushing the buttons of people, and that's what we need to do. And I think we all have that role to play that we will not take it any longer. When I tell you know some gentleman that if they're donating, I said, you know, you're not donating to me. You're donating for your granddaughter. I'm a survivor. So don't think that, you know, oh, I don't know whether I can give you $20. It's not me. It's your granddaughter. Can you give your granddaughter $20 so that she survives ovarian cancer? So we need to be thinking of our future generations, not necessarily us today. So mm-hmm. yeah, we have one of our youngest members of our pool walkers is 11. And uh, she helps out with all of our afternoon teas. And I, when I'm talking to women, I say it's it's because of this young girl. This is why we're doing this because we want her to have a good future. So mm-hmm. she's going to shape up to be a really cool person if she's doing that at 11. Exactly. <laughs> um, but yeah, so uh, your work that you do for ovarian cancer research, it's not limited to this annual walk of hope. You do plenty. No. So I would love it if you could tell me about what you're doing for Valentine's Day too. Yes. Well, we um, uh, during COVID, COVID launched a lot of things for our team. We had to think outside the box. We couldn't, we, there are a lot of activities you couldn't do during COVID because you couldn't bother, bring people together. So we were thinking, what can we do to raise money uh, for ovarian cancer? Um, so I said, well, I make truffles. Usually every Christmas I'd give people my truffles and things like that. And everybody liked them. So I said, why don't I make some truffles for Valentine's Day 
And we'll send out a notice to all our friends and contacts. And if people are interested, then they can order them and then come pick them up. And they'll only be one at a door at a time. So we won't have any problems with people catching COVID. So we did that. And the first year that I did them in 2020, I guess, 2021, 2020, I think we made something like $3,000. Wow. <laughs> I think I made there over a thousand truffles. Oh, <laughs> it was my a goodness. Lot of, a lot of truffles. So then we decided everybody would say, oh, you're making truffles again this year. So we did them last year as well. And then I've I've done them this year. So last year we sold 900. And of course, as people are getting out, there's more opportunity. They can go shopping elsewhere. Our first year when we sold them, all the stores were closed. So we were there. We were the only place they could go. So it was we kind of have a niche market there. So this year I have orders for about 800 truffles, mm. So which is still quite a lot of truffles to dip in chocolate. So A lot of work, uh, yeah. <laughs> they're all made by hand and they're all dipped by hand. So that's, I think we're doing quite well that way. I've made, started with one type of truffle and now I make five different types of truffles. So it's, uh, it's growing that way as well. And um, I get orders actually all year long for people who want the, I'm constantly getting, what have you got in your freezer? Do you have any truffles in your freezer? Do you have any chocolate bark? Do you have any cakes in your freezer? So I'm usually baking and I'm keeping things in my freezer all year long. So it's become a really good fundraiser and it's a fun thing and it's nice. People enjoy getting them. And uh, so, it's, and you know, we package them all up nicely. So um, beautiful. Yeah. So it's, and they make nice gifts. People, we do them at Christmas as well. People buy a lot. Um, I do assorted boxes and, and um, people buy a lot of them for Christmas gifts. They like to give them out as Christmas gifts and, and as Valentine gifts. So. Mm-hmm. And yeah, let those year-long requests be a testament. Yes, you know, that's right. To, <laughs> um, have you maybe got any thoughts about opening up a little truffle business on the side? Oh, no, it's too much work. <laughs> it's fine <laughs> doing it for two or three weeks, but, you know, to do it full-time, uh, no, I don't think so. But it's, uh, there's, I do so much fundraising and we do so many activities. It's all, almost like a full-time job as it is. Mm-hmm. In the summertime, we do afternoon teas in the garden. So every Sunday during the month of June and part of July, we have an afternoon tea. And we usually have between 20 and 30 people there. So, um, so that's a lot of, of uh, work and activity as well. But it's a great, I love seeing all the people in the garden sitting around the tables and laughing and chatting. And it's a great opportunity to um, to talk about ovarian cancer and uh, and and hear other people's questions. And here you always meet someone who says, oh, yes, my friend died of ovarian cancer or my sister died of ovarian cancer. The number of people that once you start talking about it, say, oh, yes, you know, somebody in my family has died. And so it's it's a good opportunity for me to talk about what women should be doing and, and getting them to spread the word as well. And this year we're going to be doing, we're offering catering services. So we're going to do afternoon tea in my garden, but we're also going to offer other people if they want to do a smaller afternoon tea in their own garden with their friends, we will cater it. We'll see how that works out. So that'll be a, a new activities this year. Growing every year. Growing every year. Yes. Last year we did a wonderful afternoon tea on a lavender farm over on Salt Spring Island. And uh, we had about... 25 to 30 people that came out to that and we set up the tables along the path among the lavender so it was really quite lovely and we had a a harpist plane and um and I did a small bake sale as well over there so that was people really liked that it was it was different as well and uh 
And a lot of people actually went over from Victoria and spent the day on Salt Spring and went to the afternoon tea. So it was nice. We try to find every year something a little bit different just to give it a little more interest. Yeah, that lavender field sounds serene. Yeah, no, it was lovely. I imagine now you're probably pumping out truffles at like record speed. (laughs) Yes, I can actually. um, I was timing myself yesterday. I can actually dip about 120 truffles an hour. So... Stop. That can't be right. (laughs) (laughs) That's crazy. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to to speak with me today. I'm running to having me. Of course, I'm running to the end of my question. So I'm going to throw it to you. Do you have anything that you'd like to say? I just I think that um, I mean, it's the same message that, you know, be aware of your own body. You know, a lot of the um, the uh, symptoms of ovarian cancer, early stage ovarian cancer are similar to other ailments that we might have, bloatness in the stomach, um, feeling full after you eat, you know, some urinary tract problems, fatigue. So it, you know, we all feel those from time to time. And particularly as women are getting older, they will have those kinds of symptoms. So they kind of push them aside and say, and that's what I did. I thought, oh, it's probably premenopausal or it's, you know, I need to lose weight or it's this or that. So I think, you know, my message is listen to your body. And when, when you've, you do have some changes taking place, go to the doctor and don't have your doctor tell you it's because you're getting old. Tell your doctor you want tests done. You want to have a physical uh, pelvic exam, for one thing, and you want to have a pelvic ultrasound. And, you know, if anything is found on the pelvic ultrasound, you want to have CA-125 blood test. And that will tell you whether or not you have ovarian tumors. There are things that you, you know, and a lot of doctors aren't aware either of ovarian cancer. So we have to really push this one. We have to push them to give us the tests that we need to get checked so that if we are at an early stage, it's caught at that early stage. Because a lot of women, I have a friend who died in October. She had been feeling pain and um, had various problems for over a year. And unfortunately, she didn't have a family doctor, so she was going to walk in clinics. So she was getting a different doctor all the time. So they do one test or another test. They determined that they probably thought, because she was losing so much weight, that she had cancer. But they couldn't determine what kind of cancer she had. Well, by the time that they discovered that it was ovarian cancer, she was in the very, very late stages, and she died two months later. So... It touched me deeply because she was a woman who came to a lot of our activities. So she should have been aware, but she was a very private person. So when she started getting ill, she closed herself off and she didn't talk to anybody. And if everybody said, how are you doing? She said, oh, yeah, I'm fine. I'm okay. You know, I think, you know, when when you have a symptom, you need to really push the medical system to give you the tests that are necessary for ovarian cancer. And it's, I mean, the symptoms are, you know, like what's bloatness? I mean, it's not, you know, you'll start feeling bloated because if you have cysts, they're going to start growing and the tumors will grow. So you really need to be aware. And that's my message. Be aware and see your doctor and ask for the proper test. Read about ovarian cancer so that you know what you should be looking for and what the different stages are. Some women, when I talk to them at some of my teas, they'll say, well, I get a pap smear every year. Well, a pap smear will not find ovarian cancer. It will find cervical cancer, but it won't find ovarian cancer. And I think that's a lot of misconception that women have, that they, they have a pap smear, so it's okay, I've, I've been checked. When you, if you have an uh, annual, a physical annual with your doctor, tell them to check your ovaries and to check, give you a pelvic exam as well as your pap smear. 
So I think it's just having the knowledge. I mean, having knowledge is always good for us in all of our medical issues, but particularly with ovarian cancer. It, it kind of makes you wonder why that's not procedure anyways for the doctors giving a physical. Well, exactly. But it's, it's you know, <laughs> what can I say? That's a whole other can of worms. Hopefully, I mean, that we, with Ovarian Cancer Canada, they have been working with, they, they partner some um, survivors, some women with doctors and like training doctors so that they are wearing trying to raise awareness among uh, the medical profession. So I think that's that's one of the other areas. It's not just raising the awareness with women, but with the medical profession as well, that they need to take it more seriously and not wait until they're, well, I mean, I don't think they're they're waiting for anything. They just, they don't do the tests that are necessary at the early stages because they think it might be something else. And I think they need to, ovarian cancer has to be one of the things they check off that it's not this, it's not that, so... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was lucky. I had a very good doctor and and sent me for all the tests right away. And so I was, you know, but not all women are as lucky as my friend. You know, she was not lucky like that. So mm-hmm. I'm sorry for your loss. And I'm sorry for all the people who are, you know, facing this deadly disease. Oh, yeah. But I, what difficult. I will say is thank you. And thank you, Pole Walkers, for a cure. Uh, oh, thank your you. Your work has done so much. And there are so many more teal shirts now because of you guys yeah. so well, thank, thank you. you i hope we'll we'll try to pass the thirty thousand this year <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> that's your record to beat that's right <laughs> cheers okay thanks I'm so gonna, much thank you we'll talk again that was my conversation with one of ovarian cancer canada's top fundraisers jennifer smith And that's it for this week's episode of The Mosaic. Thanks so much for tuning in. Music for The Mosaic is by Halizna. To listen to this episode and previous ones, go to chuo.fm slash podcasts. If you're interested in joining our news team, email news at chuo.fm. We'll see you next week, Thursday at 1 p.m. 